this evening, I want to do something a little different and uh, teach from God's Word on a couple topics, and then uh, we'll have more to say in the members' meeting. I want to talk a little bit about church covenants. What is a church covenant? Uh, and then I want to talk a little bit about alcohol. And then I want to spend some time uh, talking uh, about uh, our church covenant, and we'll do that during the members' meeting. So during this time, next about half hour, we're going to talk a little bit about a covenant. What is it? Why we have one? And and then also about alcohol. And I realize that uh, teaching on alcohol is a difficult thing to teach on for several reasons. We all bring biography to the subject of alcohol, if not our own family members, some of you immediate family, extended family. Uh, Also, uh, it's been taught on not consistently in churches, right? So there's different views on it. Uh, And probably more reasons beyond that. And uh, aware of those things, I can promise you only that I will try to be clear and that the knots in my stomach are real. Let's pray for the Lord's help as we begin. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity now to look into your word. We want to just fundamentally know what you have to say. Uh, That's what we want to hear, uh, not just from Pastor Ross or something like that, but but from you. And uh, so I pray that you help us to hear from your word and uh, trust your word and wisely apply your word. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, First, covenants. So as a local church, uh, we, as do many churches, have three main documents. And maybe they come right to your mind, uh, but the first is a statement of faith, or sometimes called articles of faith or a doctrinal statement. So this tells us, or tells others even, what we believe. The second is a covenant, a church covenant. This is how we will live. And then the third, which usually encloses the first two, is a constitution, how we will order ourselves. Uh, historically, Baptist churches have had all three, and, and for good reason. I was recently, recently talking to uh, someone who is uh, a family member, extended family member of mine, and is part of uh, an older Baptist church, and they said their church didn't have a covenant. And I thought, it probably does. And you probably just don't use it. Now, we use our covenant actively, you know. So in a minute, we're going to go to a members meeting. And as part of the beginning of that members meeting, we will together aloud in unison say our church's covenant. I don't know if our church always did that. We've done it, I think, for as long as I've been here. I don't know that I necessarily started it. But um, I think that's a wonderful thing. Because if you don't use it, it just becomes a dusty statement from the past. And you forget about it. And uh, you can kind of file it away. But the covenant has a purpose, and, and we covenant together, and we renew that covenant as we recite it. So three main documents, statement of faith, a covenant, and a constitution. Now, we also, as a church, have policies and procedures uh, that help kind of further specify details of our life together. But those are the three main uh, documents. And this evening, I want to begin by talking about the middle one of those, which is Uh, A covenant, the church's covenant. I realize I maybe didn't turn on my microphone. Oh, I did. Okay. Uh, One definition that one person gives, kind of an an explanation, 
He says, a church covenant is a summary of how we agree to live. While our statement of faith is a good summary of what we believe, our church covenant is a summary of how we agree to live. More importantly, it is a summary of how God would have us live. It does not include every explicit command regarding obedience, but it does give a general summary of what it means to live as a disciple of Christ. Does that make sense? So we as a church can't exist by saying we believe the Bible because heretics are often claiming to believe the Bible. And we can't simply say we live in accordance to scripture. We have to say, okay, we want, we want to summarize what it is that we believe together and how we are going to live together so that we might believe that together and live that together and hold one another accountable to it. Uh, I didn't plan to say this, but some of you will recall that we went through a situation about eight years ago where we had to, uh, in an act of, of kind of censure, a revocation, apply someone who had departed from the faith. And remember the line was not doctrinally, but morally. So both matter. So your statement of faith is going to speak to doctrinal integrity and your covenant is going to speak to, we could say, moral integrity. Again, both of those. So these things go together. So if our statement of faith should summarize what the Bible says we must believe in order to do church together, not every truth in the Bible, but a summary. So our covenant should summarize how the Bible says we must live as Christians in the church. Not every New Testament command, but again, a summary. So a doctrinal statement is what we must believe. And a covenant is how we must live. I'm going to say the same thing about four more times in slightly different ways. So... We can't just say we believe the Bible. I mentioned this, right? We need a statement of faith. So our statement of faith submitted to the Bible seeks to summarize the Bible's teaching of what we must believe in order to do church together. And we can't just say we will live like Christians. We need a covenant. So our church's covenant submitted to the Bible seeks to summarize the Bible's teaching on how we live. So being a coven or a congregational church we believe that actually we, that is the church, the people, uh, not some outside denomination or presbytery or, you know, denominational entity or some other fill in the blank, determine our statement of faith and our covenant. But we must do so as a church individually. We must do so, again, in submission to scripture. Why? Because it's not our church. It's Christ's. So it shouldn't be our word that rules the church, but rather, but rather Christ's. So in this way, the local church is distinct from a Bible college or a parachurch institution. Now, the local church, distinct from those, is a New Testament institution. And so we seek, with our documents, to be governed by God's word. So in a significant set, we, we don't get to set the requirements for baptism. The New Testament has, and we just seek to reflect those in our documents. We, we don't get to set the requirements for membership. The New Testament has, and we seek to reflect those in our documents. So in calling believers to, to be baptized and to join the church, we're calling them to do what God requires. They're required to do so, and so we aren't free to require uh, in being baptized and joining what the Bible doesn't. So as a church member... We have agreed, if you're a member of our church, you have agreed to live in accordance with our church's uh, covenant. 
We commit to one another to live together this way. And we ask others to hold us accountable. One clear implication of everything I've said is that to break our covenant should be to break God's word. And to keep our covenant should be to obey God's word. This isn't because our covenant is infallible, but because it should be a faithful summary of God's word. And God's word is is sufficient. So again, to, to quote the gentleman from earlier, our covenant is a summary of what God would ha- of how God would have us live. It is not, it does not include every explicit command regarding obedience, but it does give a general summary of what it means to live as a disciple of Christ. All right, so that's all I'm going to say about covenants. Uh, there's history to them, and, and we could talk more about that offline, but uh, I hope the kind of the main things I've said, which I've said several different ways, are clear. Now I want to pivot a little bit and, and talk to you about alcohol. And a good part of this I will read, and we will be looking at a lot of scripture. You may desire to turn, or you may prefer to just jot down the reference. That would be my preference, so that you can read these passages on your own later. I, yeah, that, mean, that would mean the world to me. If you would write down the references so that you could read these passages on your own later. I really mean that. But first, let me say just a few things uh, as we begin. Uh, We learn in Genesis chapter 1 that uh, a good creation means that created things are good. So the stuff of creation is is good. Maybe you would turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. I won't ask you to turn to all the passages we will reference, for they will be many. Uh, but I would ask you to turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, Paul uh, makes this argument about the goodness of creation. And he's addressing false teachers who are refusing to enjoy and then refusing to let others enjoy Uh, The good stuff God has made. So let me read 1 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in latter days, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Of course, that isn't the whole story, is it? The curse of sin affects everything, including the stuff of creation. So we see this in disease and decay. Paul can write to the believers in Rome in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 19, that even creation is affected by the fall being subjected to futility and the bondage of decay, longing for full full freedom, groaning for final redemption. So we want to say creation is good, but sin has affected us and sin has affected creation. So if creation is good, we should ask the question, good for what? Everything God made is good. These next four words matter for its intended purpose. 
everything God made is good for its intended purpose. So by clear invocation, not every use of that good created thing is good. Again, I, I trust you would just be nodding at this point. I think that's obvious, just living in the world we live in. People try to use good things in not good ways all the time. It's called misuse, right? There is a difference between saying there must be good purposes for such and such a thing and saying that all purposes of such and such a thing must be good. Those are two very different statements. So, so far, I've said some broad things about creation. I, I want at this point kind of zoom in and survey what the Bible says about alcohol in particular. And in order to do this, I'm going to make several kind of summary statements. Uh, I, I cannot, if we just would be here for too long, uh, include all the scriptures that reference alcohol or wine or strong drink. I just, it's not my goal tonight. So if you say, man, pastor, there's a passage you didn't include. I understand. My goal is actually with that all the passages in scripture that mention it directly or even indirectly would be included under one of these statements. It would fit in one of these categories. So I want to use representative passages to, to, uh, to teach some kind of broad categories of how the scripture teaches on this. I've tried to use some of the clearer text for each of these. And what I've found is I've sought to, see, sought to read individuals on both sides of the debate regarding the use of alcohol, especially by Christians, uh, is that sometimes one or more of these categories isn't talked about. So it's one of those things where I'm going to put a bunch of hooks up, and I think they all are important. If you ignore a few, you might actually misteach what Scripture teaches on a subject. Uh, I could give some some examples of that and maybe i will in a minute but let's let's jump in so this is where this is the part where i would ask that you would write down these references again this is not every reference uh, i even have some listed here that we won't mention uh, but maybe you would write down these so first in scripture we see that alcohol can be a sign of god's blessing a sign of god's blessing but it is often described as very dangerous so let's start with the first part of that statement. It can be a sign of God's blessing. Nehemiah chapter 5, beginning in verse 16. Now, I have so many texts. I'm not going to comment on them. So I trust to write down the reference and, and go and be a Berean. But let me read to you these passages. So Nehemiah chapter 5, beginning in verse 16, down to verse 19. I also perceived in the work of this wall... So I persevered in the work of this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table a hundred and fifty men, Jews and officials, besides those came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense, again this is Nehemiah, for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy for the people. Remember for my good, O oh my God, all that I have done for this people, end quote. Or Amos chapter 9, beginning in verse 13. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. 
The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. These are two examples of where wine can be a sign of God's blessing. There are also many, and I use the word often, it is often described in scripture as very dangerous. I'm going to go to Proverbs alone and just mention a few. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1. Wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Proverbs 21, verse 17. Whoever loves pleasure will be a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not be rich. Or perhaps... Most clearly, a prolonged passage from Proverbs 23, beginning in verse 29, down to verse 35. That's Proverbs 23, verse 29, all the way down to verse 35. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine. Those who go to try mixed wine. Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart utter perverse things. You will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of a mast. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me and I did not feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. Second statement. Both powerful and less powerful forms of alcohol are described as dangerous, including spiritually dangerous. And even eternally dangerous. Isaiah 5, verse 22. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink. Or Isaiah 28, verse 7. These also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priests and the prophet reel with strong wine. They are swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment. Or Isaiah 56, beginning in verse 9. All you beasts in the field come to devour. All you beasts in the forest. His watchmen are blind. They are all without knowledge. They are all silent dogs. They cannot bark, dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. The dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough. But they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned their own way, each to his own gain, one and all come they say let me get wine let us fill ourselves with strong drink and tomorrow we will be will be like this day great beyond measure end quote or amos 6 6 who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oil but are not grieved over the ruin of joseph or nahum 110 They are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble fully dried. 
Or Luke 12, verse 45. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and eat and drink and get drunk. Or later in Luke 21, verse 34. But watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. Or 1 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 9, speaking of the spiritual danger. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither will the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Another statement. God commands it to be used in sacrifices as a drink offering poured out and to be drank before the Lord as a tithe. Exodus 29 verse 40. And with the first lamb, a tenth measure of fine flour mingled with a fourth of a hin of beaten oil and a fourth of a hin of wine for a drink offering. So that would have been poured out. Or Deuteronomy 14, beginning in verse 22. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat of the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil. The firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. And if the way is too long for you, so that you're not able to carry the tithe when the Lord your God blesses you, because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses to set his name there, then you shall turn it into money, bind up the money in your hand, And go to the place that the Lord your God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire. Oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves. And you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. Another statement. God likens his wrath to the power of alcohol. Psalm 76, verse 65. Psalm 76, verse 65. Then the Lord awoke from his sleep like a strong man shouting because of wine. Or Jeremiah 25, verse 15. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Another statement. Certain people in Israel, even some key people, were told not to drink alcohol. So there's the Nazarite vow that we find in uh, Numbers 6. Priests were forbidden to drink alcohol when serving in the sanctuary. We read this in Ezekiel 44, 21. It reads, no priest shall drink wine when he enters the inner court. Another statement. God, sorry, the Bible also says God brings forth wine for our joy. And then he commands, drink your wine with joy. Psalm 104 verses 14 and 15. 
Let me read them to you. You cause the grass to grow. This is the psalmist worshiping the Lord for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. Or Ecclesiastes 9, verse 7, Go, eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Another statement. Jesus, has, uh, uh, Jesus was accused of the misuse of alcohol. Let me read Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 33, as well as verse 34. There's a contrast here. Jesus says, for John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you said he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Another statement. The New Testament letters warn Christians against its misuse, that is, overindulgence leading to drunkenness. There's many of these passages. Let me include three. Romans 13, 13. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Or Galatians 5, beginning in verse 19. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Or Ephesians 5, verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Another statement. The biblical qualities of an elder specifically include that he must be not a drunkard as well as above reproach, sober-minded, and self-controlled. And similar qualifications are given for a deacon. These are found in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. 1 Timothy 3, 3, not a drunkard. Uh, Titus 1, verse 7, he must be... uh, Uh, He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. Or back in 1 Timothy 3, verse 8, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. Lastly, last statement, we learn in Scripture that wine will be part of the future feasting in Christ's kingdom. Isaiah 25, beginning in verse 6 On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all people, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Or Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 12. They shall come and sing aloud with the, on the height of Zion. 
and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, the oil, over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn your mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priest with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. Now, uh, after seeking to summarize what the Bible teaches on alcohol, and by summarize, I mean read you a lot of passages and put them under some broad headings. I want to now zoom in on addiction and intoxication, addiction and intoxication, and make the case why both are wrong. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12, Paul writes regarding, I would say, addiction, though he doesn't use the word. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but I will not be dominated by any, that is anything. So permissible does not necessarily mean beneficial. That is, lawful does not necessarily mean helpful. So one test the Christian must apply, it's not the only test, is will this activity master me? Will it enslave me? We are created and we as Christians are then bought by God. So it is his right not our own, to exercise lordship over us, to direct what we do with our bodies. So it is not ours and it is not the right of any controlling habit or substance. So if addiction is defined, and this is just kind of a colloquial definition, um, by a persistent urge to engage in activity despite negative consequences, the drunkard in Proverbs 23, I read the passage earlier, clearly is addicted to alcohol. It is addictive. It can be. He is mastered. So he says, in the end, I must have another. That's, uh, I think that's Proverbs 23. It might be Proverbs 29. Nope, it's Proverbs 23, 35. I apologize. So Proverbs 23. If an activity or a substance masters us, we as Christians are denying Christ his lordship over our lives. We are addicted, and this is sin. Again, we could talk more broadly about that. I want us to focus in now on intoxication. The misuse of alcohol primarily manifests itself in overindulgence. This leads to intoxication. The examples in scripture are many, from Noah to the church in Corinth, from Moses' prohibitions in the law to those in Paul and Peter's instructions to the churches, drunkenness, which is intoxication, is sinful. God doesn't just say, don't do it, it's wrong. He tells us why it is prohibited. Again, Proverbs 23, which I read at length earlier, tells us that intoxication impairs physical control and cognitive abilities, seeing things, saying ridiculous things, humiliating, shameful. It can bring financial ruin, Proverbs says elsewhere. It impairs judgment, Proverbs 31, even spiritual sight, Isaiah 5. 
In short, it is a loss of control. Remember Ephesians chapter 5. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So to be Spirit-filled is to be Spirit-controlled. And this is in contrast to being controlled by alcohol. I want to just make a brief statement here uh, regarding marijuana. It is not mentioned in the Bible, but I think we need to realize, if you've driven around Lapeer County, you undoubtedly have realized, I should say, if you've driven around the city of Lapeer, you've undoubtedly realized that cannabis is here, right? Marijuana is here. What you may be less apt to realize that the average high schooler is far less likely to drink alcohol today than in the past, but they're actually more likely to have smoked pot than to have drank alcohol. That sink in. Though marijuana isn't mentioned in the Bible, it is, it is in these reasons, summarized in loss of control, that links between intoxication by alcohol and by pot can be found. This is how one author, Todd Miles, uh, put it. Being high on pot and drunk on alcohol both impair cognitive abilities, judgment, and physical capacities. Those are the exact reasons the Bible roundly and repeatedly uh, prohibits drunkenness. So, the call to follow Christ is a call to intentional self-control and whole body devotion. And addiction and intoxication are in direct odds to that call on your life as a Christian. Let me seek to, to summarize here. Uh, and then uh, I'll close in prayer. And uh, if you're a member of our church, we'll gather uh, in uh, Fellowship Hall, Ketchum Hall, uh, for our members meeting. Uh, and I'll have a few more comments, but I will have said most everything by that point. You've been very patient. Uh, a, few, a few summary uh, statements. I think scripture is clear. That wine, and by definition, all alcohol, also referred to as strong drink, and you heard the other terms, can be intoxicating and thus fraught with dangers. So the warnings are clear in Scripture. Uh, this was true in Bible times, and uh, alcohol in general is not less strong today, and so those warnings are not less true today. Because of the wide uh, spread abuse of alcohol in our society today, there are good reasons to abstain from alcohol. Uh, it is one of the reasons why I abstain from alcohol. It's not the only one. It's not just cultural. I think there's other reasons, but that is a good reason, and there are other good reasons. Uh, the leaders of, of our church do not advocate alcohol consumption, and in light of Scripture, see uh, a lot of wisdom in, in most Christians in our culture, by extension, members of our church abstaining entirely. So total abstinence, which I trust is the practice of each of our members, is a perfectly honorable and permissible practice to embrace. Um, any Christian is free to abstain from alcohol. I feel like that doesn't need to be said, but it should be. But more has to be said. As moderation is, I think, also a biblical position, Christians aren't free to insist that others do the same, that is, totally abstain. Abuse, and may, maybe you recall, some of you will remember, uh, when we were preaching through Ecclesiastes, we came upon Ecclesiastes chapter 9, where it says, drink your wine 
with joy for this has been approved by the Lord. And we tried to wrestle with it then. And the illustration uh, that I used at that point uh, was an illustration, which always breaks down at some point, was the illustration of um, guns. Maybe you remember this. And the reason why I used that illustration in large part was because of this principle. Abuse does not take away proper use. So scripturally, any use of alcohol must avoid the sin of drunkenness or of being controlled or addicted to any substance, as well as uh, any use that would bring harm to the body or hinder our testimony. Uh, Again, this is why the recreational use of of marijuana, given its intoxicating effects at the smallest of doses, is misuse. Let me just shorten that sentence. The recreational use of marijuana is misuse. In short, moderation isn't a reasonable possibility in the use of marijuana. Again, I won't repeat myself. I just want to be clear on that. Um, If the Lord tarries and the Lord allows me to be your pastor for the decades to come, you're going to hear me, unfortunately, need to say things like that again and again. Proverbs chapter 14, sorry, Proverbs, Romans uh, 14, we read, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because he is eating, his eating is not of faith for whoever does not, whatever does not proceed from faith is, is sin. I want to encourage you to read Romans 14 and 15. I didn't read those to you and they're not directly, but they are very indirectly uh, related to this conversation on alcohol. And read them with the, with the topic in mind. Perhaps you would consider re-listening to Pastor Kevin's teaching on the conscience. Uh, it was a Sunday school series and it's available uh, on our website, the audio. Let me quote uh, uh, Andy Nacelli and J.D. Crowley in their helpful book on the conscience. They say, we must never allow the conscience of others to determine our own conscience. But we must always consider the conscience of others when we determine our own actions. I would summarize this way. The Bible does not teach drinking intoxicating drinks apart from medicinal purposes is always sin. It clearly teaches that intoxication is always sin. The Bible, I believe, is sufficient today for our sanctification in in that, in calling drunkenness sin, in warning as we read against addictive and intoxicating substances, alcohol, but certainly applied by implication beyond that. And I believe the Bible is sufficient for today in not calling all drinking of alcohol drunkenness. Uh, At this point, uh, I'm going to close in prayer. Uh, And then we will be dismissed. Uh, If you're a member of our church, I'd encourage you to to gather with us uh, in our members meeting uh, here in just a few minutes, we'll take maybe a three or four minute break so we can make our way down there uh, and, uh, and gather uh, together there. Thank you for your patience and bearing with me in uh, a longer and a slightly more read teaching here tonight. Let's talk to the Lord together.